It's a privilege to be back again before you and preaching today from our series in 1 Corinthians 13, which we are going through quite forensically, pretty much clause by clause. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name is John, and today I am preaching on 1 Corinthians 13 from the end of verse 4 into the end of verse, uh, beginning of verse 5, which is what just came up on the screen at the end there. Love is not arrogant or rude. It is not arrogant or rude. Christianity is a word-based endeavour. The gospel of Jesus Christ is good news. It's an announcement, a declaration, something to be communicated and told to the entire world. That's what Jesus tells us to do, is it not? And ultimately, we have to use words to do that because words are our primary means of communication with one another. The Apostle John, when he wrote down his account of Christianity, the Gospel according to John, started with this famous words which many of us will know. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then a few verses later he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. And many of you will know that in those verses which I've just read, the word word in the Greek which John was using at the time, is the word logos. I'm sure many of you have heard that word before. John takes this Greek word, which carried a whole load of meaning in the Roman world, a whole philosophy, a whole worldview was attached to it, a whole pagan cosmology. And he says it to his readers, I'm now going to tell you what this logos is, what it means. Read on to find out. And the Translators of the Bible into Chinese, not that long ago, in a stroke of genius, when they were translating these verses, decided to translate the word logos into the Chinese word dao. Dao. The dao is from the Taoism. Some of you will have heard of Taoism or Taoism. It's the same thing. Amongst other things, it means the way. The word dao means the way. And it's a word that's wrapped up in a completely non-Christian worldview, the yin and the yang. Chinese astrology, the feng shui, which I'm sure many of you have heard of as well. And they took this word and used it in those verses. And what the translators were doing was they're doing the same thing as John was doing. They're taking this word with, as I said, a whole philosophy, a whole pagan cosmology attached to it, and they were redefining it. And they were saying, this is the way. This is the way. The true way. 1 Corinthians 13 is introduced with some words which come at the end of 1 Corinthians 12. Paul writes this, and he said to them, and he says to us, and I will show you a still more excellent way, a still more excellent Tao in the Chinese. And then he wrote chapter 13, describing this way of love, the way of love. So why have I started in this rather obtuse manner, introducing you to some words which are of no value or use to you or maybe even interest? To illustrate this point, when we come to the word, we often get things backwards in figuring out what the words actually mean. Because the question is this, what is the way? What is the way? Where shall we go to find out what the way is? Do we go to the Logos? to the Greek philosophy behind it, to Aristotle, to the Stoics? Or should we go to the Tao, to the yin and the yang, to the feng shui, the astrology, the Lao Tzu, who came up with it? Or should we go to a dictionary, maybe? That's where we often go to find out what words mean. We look it up and it tells us, apparently, what the word means. What do the words mean here? And this is our temptation. 
Paul wants to tell us about love, but we have plenty of places we think we can go to to find out what love means. For the past 60 years, I contend there has barely been a popular song which has not touched on the theme of love. It's rare to find a story, a book, a film, a box set which does not touch on the theme of love in some way. And of course, we have our own experiences as well with this thing we call love, this emotion. And the chances are that our idea of what love is has been influenced more by these things than by the God who is love. And so what Paul is doing here in 1 Corinthians 13 is showing us what this most excellent way is. Not what we think it is from the world around us, but what it actually is. Just as John in the first century, 2,000 years ago, said to the Roman world, this is what the logos is. This is what the way as you understand it actually is. And just as translators in the 19th century said to the Chinese, this is what the Tao is, the way is. You think it's this way, but actually it's that way. So Paul is saying, this is what love is, and we have chapter 13. Now the words which I've been given to speak on came up there, love is not arrogant nor rude. Or in some other translations, love is not proud or unseemly. And of course we have the same problem here. I want to now illustrate what arrogance is and what unseemliness or rudeness is. And where shall I go to illustrate that? Where shall I find out what Paul had in his mind when he was using these words, what does arrogance mean? Because as with the Logos and the Tao and with love, it might not mean what we think it means. And the answer to this question, what do the words mean, is such a simple answer. It's such an easy answer, but it's very often overlooked and missed out. And the answer is simply that you look in the Bible, in the context. I want to say Nick Harrison, a couple of weeks ago, when he was doing his bit from 1 Corinthians 13, just did a fantastic job of this, of illustrating what the words mean from the context. Paul wrote this passage on love. He didn't write it to us in the first instance. He had no idea that we would exist. He wrote it to a particular church in a particular place at a particular time about a particular set of problems which they were facing. And funnily enough, if we look through the letter, 1 Corinthians, we find those problems described in some detail. The way of love is the solution, part of the solution to the issues of the Corinthian church. And they are of relevance to us because we struggle with the same issues today. And so what were those problems? What were they struggling with that could be solved by love, not being arrogant or rude? Right, I've got a lot of points, but I'm going to be very brief. You'll be glad to know. So we're going to go through this at a little bit of a pace, but it should give you something to chew over later and think about. First, we have the problem of division. This is how the body of the letter starts, as Paul writes. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. The Corinthian church was a divided church. And in particular, it was divided about who to follow, who we look to who we esteem. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. I'm better than all of you. I follow Christ. Doesn't he trump them all? This is an an issue which we struggle with deeply today. And our history and our culture have made it much easier for us to indulge in this and to ignore this issue. We've been preaching on this a fair amount. I spoke on it last September. The usual mechanism which churches have, which communities have, when dealing with internal divisions is to actually divide, is to separate. 
We leave, and what is leaving if not a division? Back when Paul wrote the letter, leaving for another church wasn't an option. They didn't exist. There was only one church in Corinth. And so he expects them to solve it with love. At the heart of this issue is one of the shortest words in the English language and probably the most powerful word in the English language, and it is the word I. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. I follow Christ. I am the primary authority here. I know best. And this does feed right into the hyper-individualistic age in which we live. And this is the arrogance which Paul is saying you combat with true love. This arrogance manifests itself in rejecting the opinions of experts. That's something we struggle with at the moment. I know better than them from my armchair at a distance. I can do a better job than them. And it's an attitude that says what is best for me is self-evidently the right thing to do as well. If finding my true self involves abandoning my responsibilities or inflicting hurt on, or pain on others, then so be it. At least I was true to myself, the ultimate authority. And just as in most areas of modern life, we have to acknowledge that the church in general is also infused with this stuff. I'm right, you're wrong, I'm off. Whether it be in our family, and I've become very echoey. <laughs> Whether it be in our family, or our marriage, or our church, when we disagree, when we're divided, the way of love is not arrogant, but to work it out. And that will often take time. It may take a long time. Which is why, as we know, we've already read it, love is patient, love is kind. But that was another sermon. Love is not arrogant. It negotiates, it compromises, it lays down what is best for me for what is best for the whole. It does not place me at the centre. And there is no greater demonstration of this than the event which runs throughout the letter of 1 Corinthians, the thread which ties everything together, which holds it all together, and that is the event of the cross. Because a righteous God did not thunder down from heaven, I'm right and you're wrong, but he humbled himself And he took on flesh and he dwelt among us in the dirt and in the suffering and in the sin. And then he voluntarily took it all on himself so that we could be reconciled. This humility, which Paul says is like a stumbling block to the Jews and it's folly to the Gentiles. It's stupidity in the eyes of the world is what it looks like for love to not be arrogant. I lay down me for you. And we suck at this in general, and I pray that by the grace of God we will suck less at it. Love is not arrogant, it does not put me at the centre. Second, we have the problem of our judgmentalism. This is the next issue which Paul comes to, which I want to raise from the letter of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 4, verse 5. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, therefore, do not pass judgment before the time, before the Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. This also is combating arrogance, the attitude that I know a sufficient amount about something to pronounce judgment on it. And this may well be the case. 
We may well know enough about something to do that, but Paul is warning here to be humble enough to admit that we might not. See, Paul's being judged by some of the Christians in the Corinthian church, and his point is that they do not have all the facts. They're not able to make an accurate judgment. Don't be premature in your judgment. God does have all the facts, and God is going to judge in time when all will be revealed. And part of the arrogance, again, of our age is that because we do know a lot, we know quite a lot about how the world works. We can know what's going on all the way around the world. It's a technological marvel. But we can slip into thinking that we know everything. And we don't. So if we're making a decision, making an accusation, taking action, love says to us, consider your ignorance. Bear that in mind. There are still things hidden in darkness. Paul says later in 1 Corinthians 13, we see dimly as in a mirror. We see in part. Love is not arrogant. It doesn't pretend to know everything. Thirdly, chapter 4, verse 7, a few verses later, Paul challenges the Corinthian Christians with this. What did you have that you did not receive? To which many of us may respond with um, quite a lot, actually. I worked hard for this. I earned it. It's mine. I'm entitled to it. And we can find something to be proud about, as Paul writes, I'm not going to read it out, but there, in terms of being puffed up in favour of one against another. The point isn't that we can't take satisfaction in a job well done, but that we shouldn't fall into the arrogance of thinking that because we've achieved certain things, we can compare ourselves with others and think we're better. We have many blessings in life. We do have many blessings in life. And we can't take credit for the vast majority of them, if not all of them. I can't take credit for being born in 1978 and not 1078. I'm glad I was born in 1978 and not 1078. There are things which have benefited me for that, but I can't take credit for them. I can't take credit for being born in a stable country with rule of law. can't take credit for never having had to go and fight a war, being called up. can't take credit for living in a land with an abundance of food where I can choose what I want to eat today. Anything that I do achieve or have achieved is but the thinnest veneer on this enormous substrate of stuff which I can't take credit for had no control over whatsoever. So what do I have that I didn't receive? Ultimately, nothing. And what that drives me to is not pride, not being puffed up, but thankfulness and generosity. Love is not arrogant. It doesn't say, this is mine. I earned it. Fourth, chapter 6, verses 19 to 20, Paul says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought for a price. So glorify God in your body. This is specifically within the context of sexual immorality. It's my body, and I can do what I like with it. Which, if you're not a Christian, if you don't have the Holy Spirit within you, if you don't belong to Christ, is kind of true. That's why Paul says elsewhere in the letter, I don't judge those people who are outside the church for these sort of things. But if you are a Christian, if you do have the Holy Spirit within you and your body becomes the dwelling place of God, which is the definition of a temple, then Christ has purchased you for a price. Your redemption cost him his life. And it's not your own. It's not my own. 
And in doing that, when Jesus did that, he brought us, he brought you, he brought me into a plan and a purpose for your body that will involve far more ecstasy, far more pleasure, far more joy than could ever be obtained by using it for reasons which cut across the way creation was designed. God has designed the world in a certain way. Love is not arrogant. It submits to its legitimate master. Fifth, chapter 7, verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. And this is a tough one to hear in our day and age. We may not realise it, I'm sure many of us do, but we're living through one of the biggest technological revolutions in the history of the world. The invention of the internet will be up there with the printing press, if not more so, with the steam engine and the industrial revolution that came after that. And piggybacking on, piggybacking on this revolution is social media. And social media has opened up a portal by which you can speak to the entire world, or try to, if you want to. 20 years ago, you couldn't do that, and now you can. And that's an incredible thing. And one of the human needs which it amplifies massively is the need to be heard. I have something to say, and the world needs to hear it. And I'll be honest with you, that is exhausting. I don't think I'm the only person that finds it exhausting, but it can be exhausting. I can cope with what you have to say in Jubilee. I can cope with what my family have to say. I can cope with what my neighbours have to say. I can cope with what my work colleagues have to say. But I cannot cope with what the whole world has to say. And yet the world is insistent that I listen. My social media is bombarded by people who I do not know telling me I need to listen to them. It's not just social media. I open up the BBC website, front page. It's full of stories of people who I do not know, never will know, but saying they have a story which I need to listen to. Listen to my story. It's really important. I'm not going to speak for anyone else, but my story is not important enough that the world needs to know about it. I hope you know some of it. My family, as I said, neighbours, work colleagues, but the world doesn't need to know about it. I'm leading the life that God has called me to, and that is enough. I have to be content with that. Love is not arrogant. It is content. Lastly, and there could have been many more illustrations which I could have taken from 1 Corinthians 13, but, uh, 1 Corinthians, but you'll be glad to know it is coming to an end. In chapter 11, verses 21 to 22, Paul writes about communion, which we are about to celebrate shortly. For in eating, he says, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? One of the central problems which the church in Corinth was facing is a a wealth divide. The haves and the have-nots, those with status and those who had no status. And part of what the church is meant to do, and I think I'll be talking about this in July, when we come together is to break bread with one another and to share the cup, to share a meal together. We call it communion. And when this church in Corinth was coming together to do that, the haves and the have-nots, it appears that the rich were eating their own plentiful food. They've got no worries about where their meal is coming from, and most likely they were eating in a separate location. And then at the end of the day, after a hard day's work, the labourers, the menial workers, the people who had been slaves would come in and they would eat somewhere else and they'd just get the scraps. They'd go hungry. And you've got people operating out of great abundance and getting drunk, plenty of alcohol, and others who are not getting anything at all. 
And this works against the whole point of what the church is meant to be. There's a lot to explore here, but for the moment we'll say that in the context of love, the point is simple. That what's going on in that dynamic is simply rude. It's unseemly. It's not fitting. It's not the way that it's meant to be. Communion celebrates the beginning of a new covenant where God took on flesh, bore the sin of humankind in his body on the cross, and yet here we are using it as a reason to lord it over one another. I'm not saying that dynamic works its way out in our communion here, but that's what was going on in the Corinthian church, and it's an illustration of the issue. But it's a question we can ask ourselves. Do we lord it over others who are less well-off? And so love is not rude. It is not tin-eared to the needs of others. It does not lord it over other people. And so when Paul wrote, love is not arrogant or rude, these are some of the things which he had in mind. And so it can be difficult for us to hear because they're challenging issues. To pursue love, as we're told to do so at the beginning of chapter 14, the more excellent way is not easy. It is not natural. It requires sacrifice. We do not want to do it a lot of the time. Yet if we do, the benefits and blessings are enormous. Whether you're a parent or not, many of you will be, well, you'll be familiar with the exhortation to eat your greens. My mum told me to eat my greens, and I told my children, and sometimes still do, eat your greens. Is that the exhortation of a hectoring, oppressive parent or of a loving parent? I know what it feels like as a child. I don't like my greens. I still don't like my greens. I would definitely rather not eat them. I would much rather eat the meat and the fat and the sugar. They're way more appealing. And with every meal, there is a battle to be faced. Do I eat what's good for me or what is appealing to me? Because in my case, as with most children, the two rarely line up. And we all know the answer to this. It's obvious when it comes to eating food. We know what the right answer is. And as we grow up, most of us, maybe me accepted, manage to figure it out. And yet the struggle is real. The struggle to to do what is objectively good for me is a hard struggle in the face of other options which are way more appealing to my tongue, yet will do me harm in the long term. And we would be wise to apply this analogy, not just to what we eat, but to the way that we live and how we choose to live. Arrogance, pride, being essentially self-centered and organizing the world around me is a very appealing choice. If that could work, if everything could be organized around me, that would be a very appealing choice. I get what I want. And there is a lot of sugar and a lot of fat out there in the world which would feed that appetite that I have and affirm it, and try to sell more of it to me, to justify that appetite. But it's not good for me. It's not good for us. The way of love is hard, because to pursue it is to love this way, not just receive it. This verses are read out at weddings, aren't they? Everyone wants to receive love this way, but receiving love this way and giving love this way are not the same thing. And it would be great if we all received it like this. But to give it as God does, that that is difficult, but it is good for us. It may be bitter in the mouth at times, but it is good for the stomach, and it nourishes the body, and it will make us stronger. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. 
It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Amen.